Good morning, good morning, everybody. And uh, here we are on Friday morning here in Montreal saying, okay, how is this day going to pan out? And I can tell you that Marie-Pierre and I were up late last night discussing our emotional intelligence. And uh, we decided that uh, because the book is going into so much physiological detail, that maybe we should give you a little recap on why we're even talking about this book. So um, what is emotional intelligence? Why are we even bothering to learn about it? And uh, I think probably we we had quite a discussion about how to uh, to summarize it for you, um, but the the thing that's important about emotional intelligence it's basically what distinguishes us as human beings versus animals, right? The fact that we have this uh, truly human quality this endowment that allows us to make decisions, to in certain situations react in different ways. And in many, many com uh, companies, there was a huge development in trying to mimic um, intellectual intelligence by introducing artificial intelligence. Have I lost you yet? So we've got three different things going on here. So the artificial intelligence is the intelligence that people basically program into computers to mimic the actions of humans, right? The thing about artificial intelligence, it, it's a bit like an animal. It, it can only go so far. It doesn't have the ability to rationalize. It doesn't have the ability to feel a situation. And so artificial intelligence, while it may increase the productivity, the output in a company, nobody will tell it if somehow it has uh, deviated and is now not producing the right thing, right? So artificial intelligence definitely has a limitation. It has a place in our world, but it, it's never going to totally be able to totally um, replace a human. I guess I shouldn't say never because never isn't really a word, but um, with, with emotional intelligence, what companies who have adopted programs to introduce emotional intelligence seminars to start to single out people in their organization who maybe don't have the high in, um, intellectual intelligence, but have a high emotional intelligence, is to be able to work the three things all together so that a company is fulfilled 
in its mission, in its ability to do the job, to do the productivity, but in its ability to reach out to people, to make people uh, want to either buy their product or produce the product or whatever. So um, we, we need to know how to get to the level of emotional intelligence that is going to help us um, contribute to society, I guess, contribute to wherever we are. And that is why we want to spend um, time with you doing this book, investigating this book, at the moment, we're deep in the physiology of how the brain is working. And uh, Marie-Pierre and I both feel like we're back at school at the moment, trying to relearn things that probably we learned uh, during our degrees. So today, we're going to learn a little bit more about the emo how those emotional actions occur. And... Um, to, to start to talk about that, I am going to read you a little story. The most intriguing for understanding the power of emotions in mental life are those moments of impassioned action that we later regret once the dust has settled. The question is how, is how we so easily become so irrational. Take, for example, a young woman who drove two hours to Boston to have brunch and spend the day with her boyfriend. During brunch, he gave her a present she'd been wanting for months, a hard-to-find art print bought back from Spain. But her delight dissolved the moment she suggested that after brunch, they go to a matinee of a movie she'd been wanting to see. And her friend then stunned her by saying he couldn't spend the day with her because he had a softball practice. Hurt and incredulous, she got up in tears, left the cafe and on impulse threw the print in the garbage can. Months later, recounting the incident, it's not walking out that she regrets, but the loss of the print. So, you know, in those situations, what is happening is, is called a neural tripwire, right? So if you, if you think in your head, what is a tripwire? Well, it's, it's that thing that is put in your path to trip you over. And what is happening basically in the brain is that um, you get a, an impulsive feeling and it overrides the rational. So your emotional feeling trips you up before you get to the rational stage. And so then you act irrationally, right? So um, where is this coming from? This uh, was... Uh, there was a lot of research done on it, and it was discovered that the amygdala, which is part of our brain, um, is the, the part of the brain that uh, is able to do this trip wiring, right? And so the rest, the message goes to the amygdala instead of the neocortex. If you had gone to the neocortex, you would have had a rational explanation for what was happening. So as the tripwire works, it sends a message to the brain and it says, 
Is this something I like? Is this something I'm afraid of? Is this something that hurts me? And depending whether you answer yes to the question, then your, your brain is going to go into overreaction. So imagine you've got like an alarm system in your brain, okay? And as soon as the word yes happens, things start to happen. It's like the 911 has been called, and are you going to dispatch fire, uh, police, or ambulance? But what happens in your brain is the 911 call comes in and an army of actions are going on. So you've got an army of, of hormones starting to march around your body. And in this army of hormones, they're going to make you feel and do certain things. You're going to have... Um, all of the motorized actions are going to start to to be um, promoted. You're going to activate your cardiovascular system. So your heart, your muscles, your gut, your breathing, everything is going on. And your your hormones are going to heighten the activity that your brain is telling them to do. As well as this, at the top of your brainstem, you have your regular actions going on. So they're almost trying to counteract what your amygdala is doing. So your brainstem is saying, whoo, slow your breathing down, right? Get your heartbeat down. This is not safe. And you basically, it, it even makes your face muscles go into a staring fear mode, right? So everything is ready for an attack or a flight. So I, I when I was uh, thinking about this this morning, I couldn't help, uh, I'm a very visual person. And um, for me, I was searching on the internet to look for like um, a picture, and I, I'm going to still look for it because I really help it. I think it's going to help me understand, and if I find one, help you understand that you've got a, a little army in your brain that is sending out messages and doing all sorts of actions. That once the general says go, they go right, and they're not going to stop until the general says stop. And so uh, your your brain is is like a well-oiled battalion of men getting out there into action. So um, I, I've, you know, hopefully painted the picture a bit for you. Uh, Marie-Pierre is now going to explain a little bit more about what other things that are happening. And I know for sure that she has discovered some great examples of how the amygdala manages to circumvent or be a back alley to your brain. So over to you, Mary Pierre. Thank you, Nani. And just before I start, I want to make sure that everyone shared this morning the podcast. So if you are on Podbean, of course, it gives you heart every morning when you share the podcast. And at the end of the month, we do a draw for a conditioning program uh, with everyone that got heart during the month. And on Facebook Live, make sure to share too and having a comment with your uh, share so people will know why they should listen to the podcast this morning. And yes, just like Melanie said, I really feel this morning 
if I am in a, <laughs> a biology exam, but an oral exam. So I take a lot of info. <laughs> I did a lot of research to do something fun because it's Friday morning. We need to have a little bit fun with all those information. So with everything that we talked about uh, yesterday and with the part of Melanie, we have a feeling that we have no control over our emotion. And because we always talk about that amygdala hijack and now the tripwire, and we feel like we don't have control <laughs> over, but it's not really the case. Because if you think about it, when is the last time you can say that you really lost it, that you your emotion take over your brain? So when is it? I'm sure for a lot of us, the majority of us, it's been a really long time. So it's not something that uh, happened always, but it's something that we have to know about so we can really understand what is going on uh, in our brain. So the most fundamental emotion known as the basic emotion like anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, and surprise. So the basic emotion have a long history in human evolution and they have developed in large part to help us make rapid judgment about stimuli and quickly guide appropriate behavior. That's why those goes to directly to our uh, amygdala to make sure that yes, we have an emotional response quickly. But not all of our emotion comes from that whole part of our brain. We also interpret our experience to create a more complex area of emotional experience. So for instance, the amygdala may sense fear when it, sense, it senses the body is falling, but that fear may be interpreted completely differently and perhaps even as excitement when we are falling on a roller coaster ride than when we are falling from the sky in a airplane that has lost power. So they call it, it, it the secondary emotion. The secondary emotion are those that have a major cognitive component. So they are determined by both their level of arousal, so low to high, and their valence, so pleasant to unpleasant. So the distinction between the primary and the secondary emotion is parallel by two brain pathways a fast pathway and a slow pathway. So the thalamus is the part of the brain that acts as the major gatekeeper in this process. So our response to the basic emotion of fear, for instance, is primarily determined by the fast pathway through the limbic system. So when a car pulls out in front of us in a, on the highway, the thalamus activates and sends the immediate message to the amygdala. We quickly move our foot from to the brake pedal. Secondary emotions are more determined by the slow pathway through the frontal lobes in the cortex. When we stew in jealousy over the loss of a partner to a rival or recollect on our win, our win in the big tennis match, the process is more complex. So information moves from the thalamus to the frontal lobe for cognitive analysis and integration, and then from there to the amygdala. So we experience a result of emotion, but it, it's accompanied by a more complex cognitive appraisal, producing more refined emotion and behavioral responses. So it's really something completely different. So for example, you see something, 
for the first thing I <laughs> arrive, you see that thing. So the wh what you see goes to the thalamus, uh, where it's your gatekeeper, uh, and where it will be translated into the language of the brain. And most of the message goes to the uh, cortex, where it is analyzed and assessed for meaning and appropriate response. And if that response is emotional, a signal will go to the amygdala to activate the emotional center. But a small portion of those signals goes straight from the thalamus to the amygdala in a quicker transmission, allowing a faster and thoughtless precise response. So for example, if you see someone in distress, you will act without fully understanding what is going on. In the book, <laughs> they talk about a story, and I said to Melanie, I feel like there's there's no end to the story, but that's it. That's how we <laughs> we feel it in the real life. So in the book, they talk about a man that see a woman that is really in distress. They don't know what <laughs> is going on. They are uh, close to the water, and he just jump in the water. He don't know really why, but at the end of the story. The two lines of the story we know that there's a child in the water and now he can um, uh, help this child to go out of the water so that's really what happened in life so if you have um, a quick response you don't know really why you respond that way it's not really precise but it's your uh, amygdala that said yeah go <laughs> go get it you don't know why then but you will know where uh, later so Yes, the amygdala can trigger an emotional response before the cortical center have fully understood what is happening. So those two pathways, yes, there's the different morphology, different function, but it's really the everything that uh, does the response in our brain. It's not always the amygdala, it's not always, it's really something that is uh, complicated, yes, and we want to just dumb it down really understand. So to understand, I found that yes, this network are really disrupted in psychiatric disease. So I found something really simple to understand. So for example, for people with obsessive compulsive disorder. So those people, for the, a lot of, of them, it will diminish the amount of neocortex in their brain, unfortunately. So making people with OCD less able to control their impulses and they will have the amygdala hyperactive. Same thing with borderline personality disorder. It will really see that yes, there's an hyperactivity in the amygdala and it will have a lower activation in the cortex. So it's really for a lot of disorder you will see that, yes, uh, for the, a lot of them, the amygdala is so hyperactive that that's the way that um, it's working and there's the disorder. So with all those things that we learn when, when we see that, yes, animal can really um, uh, uh, function without this uh, cortex really develop, we can say that, yes, the emotional system can act independently independently of the neocortex. So some emotion reaction and emotional memories can be formed without any conscious and cognitive participation at all. 
So this bypass seems to allow the amygdala to be repository for emotional impression and memories that we have never known about in full awareness. So we have full of emotional memory in our subconscious mind. So one way to be kind of aware of this is with advertising. So you can watch a publicity and without really knowing why you feel that you will need this product. So for example, I found a publicity, okay, it's a chocolate bar and the publicity, all you see is a gorilla listening to some music. And at one moment in the <laughs> publicity, you will see the gorilla start drumming with the music. That's it. We never see <laughs> the product, but this kind of advertisement brought an increase of 20%. 20% of increase. We didn't see the product, but it goes in our subconscious mind. And that, yes, for a lot of us, we are searching for freedom. We are searching for fun. And that's why this kind of publicity was working. But other publicity did it the wrong way. For example, in the past, McDonald's tried a different way. So during a TV show, they inserted a flash of the McDonald's logo. It was so obvious <laughs> that it didn't work. <laughs> you have to be a little bit more subtle. So another company that really um, understand how to do it, it's Tostitos. So maybe you never realize it, but in the middle of their logo, you can see two friends sharing chips and salsa. It's so subtle, but it works because it, it goes in our subconscious mind and our emotional memories that yes, we want to spend time with our friend, we want to spend time with our family. So it goes a long way when we really understand how this works. So yes, we have a lot of uh, uh, emotional memory in our brain that when we learn about it, we can, of course, uh, develop our emotional intelligence to make sure to understand those uh, kind of uh, response that sometimes we don't understand. But now that you know, you can be aware of those uh, responses. So that's it for uh, my part this morning. <laughs> Okay, sorry, a bit of slow on the uptake. Actually, Marie-Pierre, as you were describing that, I was thinking about the Pepsi adverts, you know, the Coca-Cola. And I mean, what? as soon as somebody says uh, Pepsi to you, what do you think of? Well, you think of all of the... Um, exciting things you can do in life right you think of like snowboarding and uh and if that is your thing if you uh, uh, are a very active outdoor person then um that is going to be something that you associate with that and i think that's what you're saying mary pierre that if you if people use advertising to associate your emotional memories with what you're seeing, that can make you want to have the product. And you know another one I'm thinking of straight away, the Tell Us adverts, right? Tell Us with all those cute animals. Like who doesn't love cute animals? You see the little duck going and, and yeah, they do mention Tell Us at the end there, but um, you can see how, um, advertising is uh, trying to promote 
that connection of what you remember uh, of nice moments to their product. And so, you know, when um, there are lots of um, protests and things about uh, how there shouldn't be targeted children advertising, uh, what I would say is having now discovered and uh, researched a little bit more into the brain, I would say I would become an advocate as a parent to make sure that my children are not being targeted by advertising because their, their brains are so precious. You don't want them to be um, exposed, I suppose, to this... Um, subtle but almost sinister type of uh, advertising. So, Marie-Pierre, I think that uh, that is a good place for us to finish this morning. Um, we have uh, next week, we're going to be going to, we're going to be talking a little bit more about memories and how different memories are stored by different once again, parts of the brain, and soon we'll get off the brain, I promise. <laughs> okay, so goodbye, everybody, and thank you for joining us this morning. Bye for now.